Hello, and welcome to America's Eats Podcast, where we talk about the foods you know, but may not know much about. I'm your host, Daryl Bishop. Each week, we'll cover a new and interesting part of the American fabric of food and drink, and how it won its way onto our tables and into our hearts. What came first, the chocolate chip cookie or the chocolate chip? The answer may surprise you. Stay tuned and find out how the chocolate chip cookie went from a humble Massachusetts favorite to a global icon. To make a basic cookie, all the ingredients one needs is flour, sugar, and fat or oil. Cookies as we would recognize them, at least in shape if not exactly in flavor, are thought to date back to the final days of the Neo-Persian Empire in 600 CE. There, Persian bakers combined centuries of baking traditions of the Fertile Crescent with a relatively new crop of sugarcane imported to the empire from Southeast Asia. Persian cookies were more than simple sweet biscuits. They were made to taste and included things like fruit and nuts. Cookie culture entered Europe via the conquests of both Muslims and Christian crusaders. After the Umayyad Caliphate conquered Persia in the late 7th century CE, they turned their armies westward, conquering North Africa and eventually most of what is now Spain and Portugal. Thanks to their large empire, the Umayyad Caliphate controlled sugar production and trade from the eastern Mediterranean into the west. Later, Christian armies attempting to conquer the Holy Land were in turn conquered by small, crispy cookies and returned to Europe with a sweet tooth. By the dawn of the European Renaissance, cookies were available to the powerful and poor alike. Common folk purchased their cookies at weekly markets and semi-annual fairs, while the nobility could enjoy cookies baked in their own kitchens. Cookies during this time were usually small, crisp, and crunchy, and were sweetened with sugar or honey depending on what the baker could afford. Because of the United States' long connection with England and the United Kingdom, one might expect Americans to have the same word for cookie in common with their English cousins, but not so. Americans have the Dutch to thank for the word cookie. The Dutch settled New Amsterdam in 1625, and by the 1660s, New Amsterdam was a bustling city and a major North American trading hub. In 1664, King Charles II of England decided he would like to add another colonial American city to his dominion, but didn't want the bother of creating a new one from scratch. So he sent a few warships and a few hundred soldiers under the command of English Civil War veteran Richard Nichols to take New Amsterdam. Then, as later, the English managed to capture a new colony with a mere token force. And with the swish of a quill and an oath of allegiance, the Dutch residents of New Amsterdam suddenly became English subjects of New York. Though New Yorkers were legally English, they were still at their hearts Dutch and continued to speak Dutch and spread Dutch culture in America as they had before. The Dutch then, as today, called their small sweet biscuits koekje. During the 17 and 1800s, at-home baking became more refined as factory-produced flour and sugar became cheaper and more available. Innovations in cookie recipes were made, such as creaming the sugar and the butter together, which resulted in a lighter, more evenly baked cookie. Fast forward to 1930, when Ruth Graves Wakefield and her husband Ken purchased a small home along a former toll road in Massachusetts. The Wakefields enjoyed dining out, but were not fully satisfied with the fare of other restaurants around them, so they decided to open a restaurant they would want to dine in. Ken had a background in business management, and Ruth had a degree in food science and nutrition from Framingham State Normal School. A recipe for success, if there ever was one. The Wakefields named their little restaurant the Toll House, 
and conjured a clever marketing myth surrounding the house that endeared it to tourists and locals alike, a myth that was later perpetuated by the Nestle Company. The Wakefields advertised their house as a former colonial toll house, where fees were collected from travelers traveling between Boston and southern Massachusetts. Visitors to the Wakefields restaurant were greeted by a large sign showing a colonial-era toll officer ringing a bell and directing the traveler to the house. Around the officer's head was written 1709, the year the Wakefield said the house was constructed. In reality, however, the house was never used as a colonial toll house, as it was constructed in 1817, 34 years after the United States won independence from Britain. The Toll House restaurant greeted visitors with its warm, homey feel, but was also very neat and proper. The menu offered a mixture of Ruth's family recipes, along with some of her creations and recreations of foreign dishes. Writing in 1938, famed journalist Ernie Pyle said that, quote, Ruth Wakefield can cook by ear, or by taste, I suppose you'd call it. She can taste a strange dish and come home and recreate it with every ingredient in proportion. The Toll House quickly became a success, even attracting celebrities and government VIPs, requiring the Wakefields to add on to the restaurant space throughout the 1930s. A master of her craft, Ruth was perpetually tinkering with new recipes. It was in her kitchen with employee and pastry chef Sue Brides in about 1938 that she created the world's first chocolate chip cookie, which she named the Toll House Chocolate Crunch Cookie. The story of how Ruth created the cookie is one many people think they know. To date, there are about half a dozen stories that claim to reveal the invention of the chocolate chip cookie. The most widely known origin story is that the cookie was created by accident when Ruth was making a batch of cookies that required nuts, but found she didn't actually have any nuts in the house. Rushed to complete the cookies, she broke up a bar of Nestle chocolate as a substitute. It's a happy accident story that people eat up. It's likely that Ruth understood the public appeal this kind of story had, as throughout her life, Ruth herself was very coy about the exact circumstances surrounding the cookie's creation. In the 1948 edition of her cookbook, Toll House, Tried and True Recipes, Ruth wrote, I suppose most of you know Toll House cookies. Their origin and development is really a story by itself. But she left it at that, a mere hint of a story, but provided no story at all. Ruth did offer a little more information about the cookie creation story in interviews toward the end of her life. In one interview, she said that she worked out the idea of the cookie as a compliment to ice cream while returning from a trip to Egypt. Though rather less than a happy accident, this version of the story certainly seems more plausible, as Ruth truly was a smart cookie. It's unlikely that a person of her training and business acumen would have allowed herself to neglect the purchase of necessary ingredients, such as nuts, for her restaurant. It's more likely that Ruth, along with her pastry chef, Sue Brides, developed the chocolate chip cookie through old-fashioned thought and hard work in the Toll House kitchens. Ruth did say years later that she first intended to use Baker's Chocolate, a local brand of chocolate with a factory just up the road from the Toll House in Dorchester, but found that her wholesaler didn't have any on hand, and so decided to try a Nestle's semi-sweet chocolate bar, which she mashed up for her recipe. The cookies that came out of Ruth's oven were not the soft and warm cookies favored today, but rather were brown and crispy. As planned, they were initially served alongside dishes of ice cream, but were not offered as a standalone menu item. Nevertheless, the cookies quickly became popular, and people began asking for the recipe. 
It wasn't long before the Toll House chocolate crunch cookie began to earn national attention. Marjorie Husted, the original Betty Crocker, showcased the cookie in a radio broadcast about the Toll House restaurant. Another Marjorie, Marjorie Mills, also contributed to the popularity of the cookie by broadcasting the recipe on her radio show in the late 1930s. The recipe also made the rounds in women's magazines and newspapers across the United States and Canada. Ruth's creation also made the executives at Nestle sit up and take notice. By early 1939, Nestle had watched as the sales of their semi-sweet chocolate candy bar had risen sharply. Not wanting to miss out on an opportunity, Nestle courted Ruth's endorsement. They certainly were not the only ones knocking on Ruth's door. Other chocolate companies were seeking to cash in on the chocolate craze. Even though she had wanted to use Baker's chocolate at first, she decided to partner with Nestle as she was pleased with the product. An essential part of making chocolate chip cookies during this time was breaking up a semi-sweet chocolate bar to sprinkle in the dough. Nestle saw a way to keep sales high, and so in late 1939, they released a chocolate bar that was made to easily break up into 160 small pieces. Nestle called these pieces morsels. Within two years, Nestle, along with other companies, were making small, individual drops of semi-sweet chocolate, and the modern chocolate chip was born. Ruth's brown and crispy style of cookie helped it traverse the globe during World War II. The cookies had a low moisture content, which helped them survive long journeys across the Atlantic and Pacific without going rancid. Ruth and Kenneth Wakefield owned and operated the Toll House for a full 36 years before selling the business in 1967 and went into a well-deserved retirement. Ruth donated her cookbooks to her alma mater, Framingham State University, in 1969 and died in 1977. The Toll House continued operations until it was destroyed by a fire in 1984. During the economic boom years of the 1950s, the American kitchen underwent a technological revolution with the addition of many time-saving devices such as the electric stove and dishwashers. Food companies like Nestle and Pillsbury also sought to attract time-conscious home cooks to their brands by simplifying the cookie-making process. Nestle came out with a ready-made cookie mix in 1955, and in 1959, Pillsbury forever changed chocolate chip cookies with the introduction of take-and-bake refrigerated cookie dough. Just a few years later, in 1963, the National Biscuit Company, more commonly known as Nabisco, introduced Americans to a small chocolate chip cookie they advertised as being as good as homemade. They called their new cookie Chips Ahoy. Apparently, the name was chosen as a reference to the generous number of chocolate chips found in each cookie. Initial marketing by Nabisco claimed that each Chips Ahoy cookie contained 16 individual chocolate chips. Wally Amos didn't set out to become famous, at least not for his cookies. Wallace Amos was born in Florida in 1936, but moved to New York at age 12 to live with his Aunt Della after his parents divorced, where he was impressed by Aunt Della's special chocolate chip cookies. From New York, Wally joined the Air Force, which took him to the sunny shores of Hawaii. Upon returning to New York after his honorable discharge, Wally attended college and was hired on at the William Morris Talent Agency as a mail clerk. Wally quickly rose through the company to become its first African-American talent agent and headed the company's newly created rock and roll division. It was Wally who, in 1964, recognized the duo of Simon and Garfunkel as something special 
and signed them up with William Morris. Wally left William Morris to start his own talent agency in Hollywood, California. Wally used his homemade chocolate chip cookies to help his client pitches stand out with potential music labels and movie studios. After his talent agency failed to gain traction, Wally stopped selling talent and began selling his calling card cookies. With financial backing from his friends from his William Morris days, Marvin Gaye and Helen Reddy, Wally opened the first famous Amos cookie store on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood in March 1975. In order to attract attention to his new business, Wally staged the store opening like a big Hollywood movie premiere, and it worked. Soon, Wally had multiple famous Amos stores, and his cookies began to be sold in grocery stores. Throughout the rest of the 1970s and into the 1980s, Wally could be seen cheerfully pitching his cookies in front of his stores, singing, Famous Amos, to the tune of Handel's Hallelujah Chorus. Wally later sold the famous Amos company, but he's never really left the baking business. He still serves as a spokesperson for Famous Amos Cookies and focuses on a new startup company called Aunt Della's Cookies. The 1980s were the decade of the American chocolate chip cookie. Thousands of cookie stores popped up on the streets and in malls all over the country, making everything from warm and gooey to brown and crunchy cookies to meet regional tastes. Two such cookie brands to emerge as industry leaders came from the East Coast kitchen of David Liedermann and the West Coast kitchen of Debbie Field. It was after an embarrassing conversation in 1977 about what she planned to do with her life that Debbie Field decided she was going to become a business success by selling chocolate chip cookies. Many people doubted she would succeed, including her parents and her economist husband, Randy Field. Nevertheless, Debbie opened Mrs. Field's Chocolate Chippery in a food court in Palo Alto, California in 1977. Rather than offering small, brown, and crunchy cookies, Debbie sold oversized cookies that were soft and slightly underbaked. At first, business was slow, but Debbie quickly changed tactics and began building public goodwill by offering free samples. The tactic worked. She found that every fifth free cookie resulted in a sale, and soon her little shop was in high gear. Free samples became one of the hallmarks of Mrs. Field's cookie stores. Like the Wakefields before them, Debbie and Randy both contributed to the success of Mrs. Field's cookies. Debbie understood her customers and built her store around understanding people and generating goodwill. Randy brought in his understanding of economics and constructed a software program that gave franchise owners access to a database of information and experience gained by Debbie and helped them tailor their baking to meet the average demand for different times of year. Randy once said that Debbie succeeds because she is a good person. At its height, Mrs. Fields had over 700 individual locations, many of them in malls and airports. Debbie and Randy sold Mrs. Fields in the early 1990s. In 1979, David Liedermann had been a New York corporate attorney as well as a station chef in an elite French restaurant. After returning to the U.S., David began marketing gourmet sauce products to the home cook, but they failed to catch on. Not giving up, David opened both a restaurant and a cookie shop next to one another on 2nd Avenue and 53rd Street in New York City. David's cookies stood apart from Wally Amos's brown and crunchy and Debbie Fields' soft and gooey cookies by being flat and chewy. Business was slow at first, but luckily for cookie lovers everywhere, David's cookies won the approval of New York Times journalist Florence Fabricant, 
and soon people were flocking to buy his cookies. So overwhelmed was David that customers would sometimes be met with a sign that said, Out of cookie dough, come back in three hours. David's cookie success led him to franchise his business and had over 200 stores worldwide within 10 years. In 1987, David's cookies shifted business models to focus on mail-order cookies. David sold his business in 1996, but you can still get David's cookies delivered to your door. Another notable cookie brand to rise in the 1980 chocolate chip cookie fad was Otis Spunkmeyer, which was named by the company founder's 12-year-old daughter and is apparently an amalgamation of NFL lineman Otis Sustrunk and popcorn mogul Orville Redenbacher. One cannot talk about chocolate chip cookies without mentioning cookies and milk. There's something magical that happens when a chocolate chip cookie meets a glass of cold milk. Well, not so magical so much as scientific. Matthew Hardings, a chemistry professor at American University, has uncovered the chemical reason why cookies and milk are the perfect pairing. According to Professor Hardings, when the emulsifiers in the milk meet the fat content in the chocolate, they create a smoother chocolate taste. The milk also mellows the sharp sweetness the cookie crumb can have. Eating a chocolate chip cookie with milk is a complex but wonderful sensory experience. Nearly 100 years on, chocolate chip cookies are still among America's favorite cookies. It's estimated that Americans consume 7 billion chocolate chip cookies each year. It's a kind of cookie that today seems so obvious that it must have been around for as long as there's been cookies and chocolate. It's unlikely that Ruth Wakefield could have ever imagined that of all her dessert recipes, it would be the simple Toll House chocolate crunch cookie that would earn her a place of prominence in culinary history.